0: Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. This episode is our third and last in a mini-series covering the Brandenburg Concerto Number 4, taking a look at a moment from each of the movements. Today, Christian has chosen a moment from Movement
1: three.
2: So there's definitely this show-stealing moment here, the violinist, the violin solo. That's played beautifully by the soloist Shunsky Seto here. However, I want to introduce this movement first as something that's just a lot more thoroughly organized than just a feature for a violinist. I said at the end of last week's episode that I was having a lot of trouble deciding what the moment was going to be to focus on during this, this last presto movement of the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4, one of my favorite concertos of all time and my favorite movement because it's hard to pick. Yeah. And the reason why it's hard to pick is because at every turn, there's something going on. At first, we have an opening exposition of a wonderful energetic fugue that starts with these two notes and is accompanied in a, in a lower voice as well. As it's little notes descend back into the texture, it flows and flows. And as it grows in texture, we notice these wonderful held out notes that snake through it. That push on and on, push through and down and lower and lower. And continue on like completely seamlessly. This whole thing is like, I'm making an analogy here almost like to fabric. Like this is, this is so smoothly woven, this fugue here, that it almost seems like a like a blanket or a quilt to me. That's how smooth all of these things weave together. But it also has so much energy. So it's like an electric blanket? Yeah, it's like <laughs> an electric blanket.
0: It's not hot, really, though. It's a
2: hot cause, blanket because <laughs> those, yeah, those are warm. They're not really energetic. It's it's more maybe akin to like a stream, like a flowing stream of water that's very fast. Yeah, like
0: a brook. There you go. Which, in German, is Bach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like how I immediately when I started talking, you you were like, "All
2: right, uh, I know where <laughs> you're going with it." But then, of course, just like we've been talking about the last few weeks, Alex, this thing really plays with the idea of what it even is. When it starts, this sounds like a strict fugue that could be for voices or organ or anything. Mm. It's almost abstract the way this starts, even though it has a lot of energy. It's just a fugue at the beginning, an, right. old, an old style fugue with long notes in it. And yes, there are short notes that move really fast, but it's a fugue. It's got you know melodies offset by other melodies. It's got right. counter subjects. It's got the, It's the whole thing. But then, of course, the violin will take over and have some, some of the spotlight. And energy builds a little bit again as the recorders are really treated like background. So far, they haven't had much to do that is any more important than the Ripieno Orchestra, which is the background orchestra. But as we've said, Alex, that's not really the case here. The background players are not really, they don't really have a lesser role than the recorders here. This almost seems like a feature mostly for the violin. Again, Bach is kind of playing with, just like in the other movements, he's playing with what, what a concerto is. Clearly there is one leader, but it's not exactly just a trio of soloists, and then in the background six or seven others. Yeah, it's just that when, when most composers write for a solo instrument, they just let them let that be it. But you can listen to the This whole thing, looking at only the first, at the solo violinist, that's fine. You'll get a lot out of it. Next time, listen to it a second time, and this time listen purposefully past him. And you'll notice that as he's playing the most, the fastest, most impressive notes and bowing all these crazy things and double stops and tremolos and everything, that behind him, musical accompaniment is another imitative fugue and all this wonderful counterpoint that's also Mm. in the background. Yeah, I don't think I ever noticed that. Yeah, (laughs) it's not even... It's almost like a hidden Easter egg for you to find. (laughs) It's incredible how much effort Bach clearly put into something that not everyone would notice, which... Is a hallmark, I think, of a really good, really good work. Anyway, as the violin soloist plays these broken-up chords really fast, the result is a few harmonies that almost don't even fit. That with notes in them that, if taken vertically, almost sounds strange. But it goes by so fast, it, it doesn't matter. And there's such such a impressive showmanship going on. But it it leads to the moment that I've chosen uh, for us to listen to today, which is a bit of an interpretation choice, which is when this whole solo section ends, listen to how it does so. So we need to get back into the main refrain of the music. To do so, uh, Shunsky Sato has decided, as the leader of this this performance, to go a bit slower into his own solo stuff here, and then do a little bit of an accelerando, get a little bit faster to go back into the speed. It's a wonderful effect. It's not written in the score to do this, it's one of those things you just have to know to do to make it really work. It works beautifully, and it gives the piece a lot of energy when that tempo changes. Tempo changing in the middle of a Baroque piece is, not, is almost never notated, unless it's like a sectional division. Completely different music right but as long as we're in one meter and and feel that usually doesn't happen
0: yeah that's true and and did they did they take liberties like this in the time we just know we know some things from from documents and things
2: like that yeah we think they did I think they must have because of how sparsely notated the music was because of what's not written, I think we have to assume that they did a lot, that they worked out a lot on their own. And also sometimes we have to remember, thinking historically, that their musical training was so intensive and rich. Right. They lived and breathed how to ornament how to slow down push and pull how to lead each other what to do when the chord was like this when the tones were like this when when you played this exact note when you played with this exact person when you yeah, played alone they,
0: they understood the compositional nature they were trained in composing yeah. we talked about this before they understood that stuff and maybe maybe that does mean that there was a lot more going on tempo wise also yeah in the performance that's not notated I mean, after all, music notation is a means to an end. It's not an art in itself. I mean, it could look nice, but that's not the point we've said before. And if they didn't have to write something, they didn't. We know that about the Baroque era in terms of music notation. Because the ornamentation and the flourish and the ultimate effect of the music was the point. Mm -hmm. Just like with Baroque art and architecture, those things had a lot of flourish and floridness, floridity. (laughs) to them and uh, a lot of flourish to them and the music notation was not the point right so they okay. just wouldn't write the stuff that didn't that didn't matter
2: and we know a lot of the works from this time period are lost sadly part of that is because of the level of importance that was given to that sheet music itself which was not that important i mean bach saved a lot luckily and people saved a lot of his stuff luckily but not everything and the music the music itself was only a means to an end and there there was like an ideal music that could be performed and notated but the notation was just was just notation yeah to be clear here i don't, I don't think we're saying alex that modern musicians don't have as much training <laughs> they do it's more specialized but it's more specialized yeah and it has to be because music is bigger now yeah. So yeah. these people had the, what I guess was their benefit, which was that their musical style was very isolated. And this yeah. is all they had to worry about. They didn't have the globalization of different musical styles to think about. And also instruments were less complicated then, or instruments were less technologically advanced then, I guess they could actually sure. do, they could do less. Trumpets could play fewer notes. You know, they didn't have valves. The valves yeah. had not been invented. And all this stuff meant that what whatever they could do, they could really just spend all their time on and diversify as well like you said alex they could compose they could they all knew how to arrange they all knew how to play keyboard they all understood harmony to a degree and it's understanding of harmonic flow you know that that they had
0: yeah and just like today the people on the cutting edge of musical artistry would have been the ones kind of calling the shots in a lot of this stuff in other words like stylistically how you would treat formadas and ritardandos and echelarandos and things that aren't written in the music, probably wherever the height of style was at the time, whether it was Italy or whatever, depending on the era, is what dictated what was cool, right, to do, Mm -hmm. what was in vogue. And we see later in the timeline, we see Paris becoming a big, a big center of musical culture as well as other kinds of artistic culture. Not yet at this time. It's a lot more fragmented. But nowadays, in American popular music, like basically billboard chart type music what I'm talking about right now. It's actually a similar like effect happening in the sense that the, the way you produce that music, right? The production techniques of that music are very specific mm, and the good point. The stuff that's cool right now in terms of the way that things are produced is very particular to this year, twenty twenty two, right? And in twenty fifteen it wouldn't have sounded cool to do that or whatever and it won't in twenty twenty eight. And that's nobody's writing that down in fact it doesn't behoove anybody to do that because they're just making music and making money you know like it's people are there are books and things telling you how to be a good music producer but i mean you're going to probably be woefully behind by like half a decade or a decade whenever you learn it you just have to be on the cutting edge of it and know what's going on and be immersed in that world and that was probably what it was back then, too. you got to be Im- immersed in the culture.
2: Yeah, that's a good, interesting perspective that, uh, you know, maybe the Quincy Joneses of, of today are the ones who... Yeah. The producers are the, are the ones who, who control that particular aspect of, of music sound now. Whereas hundreds of years ago, the, the only ones in charge of that were the orchestra musicians themselves. And, but the notation, yeah, the notation is, is certainly not very much of the puzzle at all.
0: Yeah. So much more
2: going on than what's on the page. Mm -hmm. So because there's so much you can do and interpretive decisions you can make, uh, they have a lot of freedom, but they also have a lot of work cut out for them. Right. And that's why this performance is really good. (laughs) This is is a really good performance. This one by the Netherlands Box Society is very polished and you can tell they really worked stuff out. You can tell they really worked out details that they had time to work out that other performers don't often do.
0: Yeah, and like timing details. I mean, we talked even in the Brandenburg 3 ones, we talked about those moments of unison strings when they all come together and go da 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 and then they'll hang on that top note a little bit longer. Yeah. same kind of things are happening in this especially when Shunsuke Saito has a line of eighth notes is what it ends up being in this movement that starts the first one he'll take a little extra time on and everybody knows that he's gonna do that and you can tell they know because they wait for it and if you hadn't rehearsed that very carefully it would not line up because people would not understand what's going on but he would he would go you know instead of he takes a little time on the first one and that's the kind of thing that just gives it that extra charm right and we've talked a lot about articulation on this podcast but you know near the end of this of this work bum, bum, sometimes soft sometimes loud but they always hit that note with a similar articulation of like a short note is a cool choice you know actually it's not a cho- well i'm looking at the manuscript there
2: is a staccato marking on it uh, but the way they're playing it is yeah is the short one is the first one kind of they're doing them both with some separation right yeah
0: da-da-dum, da-da-dum, but it, it makes sense their choice because that first one is connected to the previous yeah. little line exactly. so it's like exactly. short short but the first short still is connected to the first the other stuff before it so the thing that gets that stands out as a cute little, little exclamation are those notes that sound a little higher because most of the instruments are going up. But da da-da-dum, bum! That one, right? Mm-hmm. Stands out. It's delightful. Little extra thing that brings us into the ending. You know, last episode, I talked about the late Dr. Carolyn Bremer, who had great advice for me as a composition student. And I will say that another composition professor who had advice about endings, and this reminds me of that. uh, That was Dr. Alan Shockley. You know, it's a sad coincidence that both of those people are now passed away now. Mm. Um, Dr. Shockley died a couple years ago also. But his advice about endings was that you always have to save some kind of interest for the very last few measures of the piece. And for him, for his music, a lot of times that would be like another whole instrument which hadn't played yet until the very end. And that was just kind of his, his own unique way of expressing some kind of interest at the end of a piece. But here we have Bach doing something different with the articulation right at the end, something nice and cute. And you know, he did a similar thing in the other movement. And I think, you know, part of the reason why these these two composition teachers, their advice sticks out to me so much is because it's based on all this experience from all this music in the past. I mean, we see Bach following that rule, or at least that guideline, right, that you should save something interesting at the end.
2: Yeah, Alex, all of the radical and postmodern and also extremely high modernistic thought that has wound its way into our composition seminars and teachers and stuff mm-hmm. which is all very intense and academic yeah it all seems so imposing and upon our, our musical style but then the more we talk about it the more i i realize that it just is found in bach all yeah. of it yeah. the, the the people who are who are high modernists who who think that everything everything is building up to some like perfection but they, they acknowledge Bach's perfection, and even the postmodernists who, who want to throw everything away and start from scratch, or invent their own combinations of unique things and pull indiscriminately from all, any manner of sources around the world, even people who despise European music because of its cultural baggage and, and so on mm-hmm. of, of the Western world, they, they can't deny that in Bach are all of the most base and simple and effective compositional procedures that you can learn. Mm-hmm. It's all there. In the Brandenburg Concertos, it's all it's all there.
0: And now, here is Christian's moment from Brandenburg Concerto number four, movement three. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Brandenburg Concerto No. 4, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. If you want to hear our new episodes as we release them, find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe,
2: that way you'll get all the new episodes as they drop. So we've just completed a three-part mini-series on a Brandenburg Concerto this year. We should probably do one of these each year, I think. Yeah. Now, Alex, what's next week? Next week, we'll look at a short chorale,
0: Meine Seele erhebt den Herrn, BWV 324.
2: Until next time, enjoy those moments.